Plucky Ladies Podcast, exploring female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence. Hosted by Jess Cat. Today on Plucky Ladies, I speak with Dr. Ananya Malik. She is our endowed chair in gem science in the Department of Geosciences, which is a brand new track that we have in geosciences that we're very excited about. Um, Her areas of expertise are in experimental petrology, chemical differentiation, and evolution of the earth and planetary bodies. And I'm really interested to speak with her today because you're the first experimental geologist that I've really had on the podcast. So welcome, Ananya. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be the first one, the first experimental geoscientist. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) this is so exciting. It's so exciting. I've had, we've had lots of talk about field geology, (laughs) but I haven't been able to talk with someone who really works on experimental petrology. So this is great. Um, So before we get into talking about your work, which I definitely want to do, Uh, I want to go back a little bit and learn a bit about you and sort of where you come from and how you found your way into this really interesting part of geosciences. So, so where are you from? Where'd you grow up? So I'm originally from India. I was born and raised in Kolkata, which is, uh, it's a huge metropolis, actually, the eastern part of India. Um, My interest in geology kind of started in middle school and I was fortunate because not many people get exposed to geology in middle school. Uh, Mm. We actually had a teacher who was, she was a geography teacher and she's probably one of the best teachers I've had ever. And she actually started talking to us about plate tectonics. And this was when I was in eighth grade and I found that fascinating Um, I got so interested, I started reading up on my own. And then I was like, maybe this is something I should think of, you know, pursuing down the line. But what wasn't clear to me is what is the path to actually like study plate tectonics? Like, you know, what sort of career options are there? Like, what what should you take up, you know? Because, I mean, you know, I come from a family where I think STEM is highely respected, but Mm. geoscience is like a brand new thing. Like I'm the first geoscientist in my family and no one knew about plate tectonics, you know, until I started talking to them about it. Um, So were your parents, were your parents in STEM in some way? Well, so my father, he's, uh, he's retired now, but yes, he was an electrical engineer. My -hmm. mother, she's a teacher. She's actually a historian Mm -hmm. and she's very enthused. I think she's my, my greatest advocate because yeah. Uh, she, you know, like she is so interested about what I do that it has come to a point, like whenever they go on a trip somewhere, they have rocks to collect and she actually <laughs> reads up, you know, a little bit about what these are. And then she asks me questions. So oh yeah, I'm, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, you know, um, and you know, my uncles and aunts, you know, many of them, they're actually, um, in STEM fields and sciences in some ways. Um, so do you have siblings? I don't have siblings. No, you're an only like me. Yes. <laughs> All right. Okay. We probably have some common ground there. We could talk about. <laughs> yeah, that's so crazy. Yeah, um, I'm I'm the only child. Yes. <laughs> so it's it's also interesting to me that um, where you grew up in India is not different really from here in the sense that we don't get geology here in middle school or high school, there are very few schools that offer earth science or geology as a full class in either middle or high school. So really your only exposure to it is maybe you do a unit in fourth or fifth grade or seventh grade or something about rocks and minerals. And so it's interesting to me that that 
might be a global phenomenon, which is kind of sad because most people who end up in geosciences, they don't get there from a young age. They kind of discover it later. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I was very fortunate that I had uh, Miss Indira Majumdar. That, that was her name, actually. So, uh, mm. you know, and she's, she's, a, she's one of the most scholarly people, you know, I've, I've known. Uh, she mm-hmm. was my geography teacher. Um, I also learned a little bit of French in school. So she was also our French teacher. Oh, and wow. uh, she got us so interested in so many different kinds of things. But I would, I always tell her that she's the person who actually inspired me to start thinking about geology. Um, I so that. yeah, that I was don't think... fascinating. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure people always understand how important teachers are to young kids' yes. school experiences. Like I have two young boys and, you know, when we ask them about school, it often goes to a discussion of which teachers they like and which teachers they don't like. And the teachers they like are the teachers who are really enthusiastic and very encouraging and really bring out the excitement of whatever topic they're teaching from math to English to everything in between. And the teachers they don't like are the ones that they say, it's clear that they don't want to be teaching mom. Like they, they, they don't like us or they, they're clearly upset or frustrated. Or they, and I think to myself, it's such a particular job where you really have to have patience to be with these kids, but also be able to express your enthusiasm for the topic that you're teaching. And then you spark curiosity in these young minds, which is really where it often starts for people. Exactly. I totally agree with you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And do you find yourself thinking about that when you teach? I do. Yes. So, um, you know, like she's been such an inspiration that I can actually understand how much of an influence teachers may have on students, their thinking, you know, what career path they choose. Uh, they're mm-hmm. even the principles in life, for example, a lot of things. Um, and so, yes, yeah. this is something that I definitely keep in mind when I'm teaching. Uh, I hope to, you know, get young minds interested, uh, not just in petrology, you know, in the specific field of geology that I teach, but just to, to get them interested and curious, you know, about science, to question things around them, because I think that's the starting point, you know, once they start questioning things, they get interested, they start reading, thinking about it. And then, you know, they have a concrete idea in mind that this is what they want to pursue down the line, because that's exactly what happened to me. And I'm glad Mm -hmm. that it happened, you know, in middle school that early on. So, you know, that sort of gave me uh, an opportunity to start thinking very early on, I would say. And that helped. Yeah. So, yeah, I joke with my kids a lot because they, neither of them really cares about geology at all. They have two geologist parents, but they don't really (laughs) care about (laughs) geology. But wherever we go, you know, I'm talking to them about what's around us. Like we'll be driving through Northern Arizona and I'll say, oh, you guys know there used to be an ocean here and there's dinosaur bones in these rocks. And they're just like, oh gosh, mom. But, you know, I feel like at some point, something I say might spark a question and they might be like, wait a minute, how is that possible? And then a conversation starts. And to me, it's that curiosity that makes all the difference between Mm -hmm. doing a job that's just a job and doing something with your life where you feel energized by what you're doing. Absolutely. I I completely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask you about, um, so when did you actually leave India and end up in the United States? So I left India after I finished my master's um, in Kolkata. So I basically, I I did a bachelor's in geology, 
also a master's in geology from uh, Jadavpur University, which is, it's actually one of the most uh, sort of eminent and well-known universities in India, and they have a fantastic uh, geoscience program. And I really got interested in petrology because from the perspective of how we were able to study processes that go on inside the earth. Um, and mm -hmm. at that time, you know, I did not have much exposure to other planets, but then I realized that this is also something that will be applicable to other planets and planetary bodies as well. And then there weren't any sort of experimental petrology facilities that I had access to um, in Jadavpur University. But then through my courses, I figured out that some of the most fundamental questions in earth science can be answered through laboratory experiments because we create controlled conditions where we actually study a certain targeted, say, reaction or process that we actually simulate in the lab. And I got very enthusiastic about learning more about this. And so that's when I thought that maybe, you know, I should go to grad school. And if I don't have access to that facility here, maybe I should go somewhere else where they mm -hmm. do have that facility. So that's when I got curious. I started looking at uh, grad school opportunities mostly in the US, I would say, because one thing that I did know uh, from you know, talking to other folks was that uh, the PhD program in the US is, uh, it, it's usually longer than PhD programs in some other countries and it's more mm. sort of intensive. And I felt yeah. I needed that kind of a training. So mm. that's when I started you know, studying these different programs and opportunities uh, that would be available in schools across the US. And as you can understand that as an international student, you know, things about the U.S. were sort of a gray box for me. You know, mm -hmm. most of my knowledge about the U.S. comes from watching movies. <laughs> yeah. And that's definitely, you know, not all of it. So uh, it was, you know, a learning curve for sure. Uh, you know, yeah. researching more about the different programs and, you know, how things happen. And so I was, uh, I had fantastic mentors, I would say, uh, back in India who actually guided me through this process, you know, where to look for things, you know. Mm -hmm. how to approach professors, uh, you know, things that you, that you're not aware of, right? Um, especially when so you're these in a different system. Yeah. Yeah. These are the things that, that I don't think people often realize are so valuable for our students is that mm -hmm. sort of um, almost informal mentoring. And it's one of the reasons that I um, mentor here at the University of Arizona, because I feel like sometimes it's not even those academic questions that students need help with. It's often just, you know, I don't even know where to begin. I'm so interested in going to graduate school and I don't know where to begin. It can be very overwhelming, um, you know, and so having a mentor or a couple of mentors in your life that you trust that you can go to with those questions, I think is so pivotal for many, many students. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm so fortunate that I had great mentors who actually, they, they guided me through this, you know, they sort of told me that one of the great advice that they gave me is uh, to look up abstracts from conferences like AGU, you know, the American mm -hmm. Geophysical Union, as you know, uh, because yeah. most, you know, earth scientists in the field, they would attend these conferences. So look up the abstracts and see what kind of research they're doing and then find out or identify, you know, potential problems that you're interested in and then reach out to these people, you know, and see yeah. if they have an opportunity to take you as a grad student in their program or their lab. And I think that was such like valuable advice because mm -hmm. that actually forced me to do some research, you know, about what's going on, you know, what are the things that are 
that people are working on? What are the questions out there? And so, yeah. you know, I was able to identify a few programs that I was interested in. And then, you know, I approached them and, you know, most of them, they had, you know, they encouraged me to apply to their program, of course. And then yeah. I did apply and I was fortunate because I applied to eight places. I got offers from seven of them. Oh, wow. And yeah. then it was a bit of a thing because then I didn't know who to choose <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because you can imagine it was a gray box for me. So, you know, I didn't know what criteria to use, you know, to choose one place over the other. So yeah. I'm glad that I chose to go to Rice University in the end. Mm. Uh, but I have to say this, it was kind of a bit of a, what to say, like throwing an arrow in the dark, you know? Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I was like, you know, my, my PhD advisor, his profile, his research, you know, looked great, anyway, aligned with my interest. Rice University is a great university. Um, so I was like, okay. where is it? Where is in it Houston. located? In, in Houston. Houston. Oh, yeah. so the climate may not have been very different from what you're used to. <laughs> that is true. Yes. But I have to say one thing, which is Houston has two climates. There's an indoor and an outdoor climate. It's freezing oh, yeah. inside. <laughs> yeah. It's well, freezing inside for the air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's kind of like that here in Tucson as well. Um, but it's interesting to me, you talked about these this advice that you received about looking at the questions people were asking in the work they were doing, because this is another piece of advice I tend to give students all the time is don't just pick a school that you think you want to go to and then just send some random email to a person and say, I want to come there. You really need to have sort of thought out you as a scientist, what is it that's piquing your curiosity and what are questions mm -hmm. that you might have? Because that's, what's going to set you apart from other students who are asking to come into a program. If a, if a professor sees that you've really been thoughtful about what am I curious about? What might I contribute to this program? It's not that you're saying I can solve all these problems and I know everything, but you're saying I'm really interested in subduction zones. I'm curious about the processes that are happening, you know, 3000 kilometers down in the earth. I'm, I wanna know what it is that makes this happen or this not happen. And those types of questions, I think, show some maturity and some thought and some real consideration to what you're curious about. And uh, so I'm always telling students, oh, you think you want to go to that school? Why? Who do you want to work with? Why do you want to work with them? What projects are they working on? How do you see yourself and fit into that project? So that's a great piece of advice that you received. I think so. Yeah, I totally agree with what you said. And I, I would also say that doing this research also forces the students in some ways to actually do uh you know actually start thinking actually sort of you know doing their own homework uh for mm -hmm. lack of a better word you know because sometimes you know you can maybe send off a list to a student saying that oh you know these are the people working on these these things or these are the schools that look great and so maybe you should just apply but then that does not you know often um sort of uh, push the student to, you know, sort of find out more, you know, about this. It's yeah. sort of like if things are given to them, then they don't yeah. often bother to do their own research, but that's very, very important for them to do. Uh, to be well, able it's to sort make of a great decision for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It sort of goes with the theme of my podcast, my podcast of being plucky. I mean, there's something about, you know, things are going to be difficult. You're going to have challenges and sure, a faculty member could give you a list of the best programs in the country mm -hmm. for your interests and say, just apply to these. But 
that's, you know, at some point you have to take some responsibility for where you're going in your future. And sometimes that means taking a chance and doing something really scary, which might include reaching out to a faculty member that's really esteemed and has lots of accolades behind their name. And you go, but I want to work with that person. So I'm going to reach out to them and see yeah. what happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, I want to talk a little bit about what it was like for you then to land in the States for the first time in Houston and, you know, being from another country, being a person of color, ending up in a sort of a Southern state, which maybe, you know, is a little different from maybe going to say a place like New York, which is really diverse. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot, this con our country here, the United States is so huge and the States are all so different that you can have a completely different experience in Texas versus Arizona versus New York versus California, you know, it's almost like they're all their own countries in some ways. So yeah. I'm just curious sort of how that went for you. And if you had any struggles, was it, was it easy? Did you find a tribe early on? Like, what was that like? Yeah. So, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned New York because to be honest, before coming to the U S my idea was that all cities in the U S are like New York. <laughs> and so, yeah, you hear a lot about New York yeah. I mean, New York is a famous city, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so when I first landed in Houston, I think the first thing I observed was that I was expecting to see a lot of people on the streets, like the show in uh, the movies about New York. And I didn't see that. And so I was like, right. where are the people, you know, I, I know that the city has like, you know, a population of a few million, but where are the people? And then I realized that Houston is not like a walking city like Manhattan is. So that yeah. was like the first thing I noticed, I remember, um, you know, so uh, weather wise, you know, Houston was very similar to where I'm from. So that was yeah. not a problem at all. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was in a new country, you know, I was curious to explore like, you know, well, what's it like? Um, I think a little bit of a hurdle for some of us is that, uh, especially, you know, those of us who come from big cities um, in uh, some other countries is that we are so used to taking public transportation that, oh, yeah. I mean, I, even though my parents insisted, I never even bothered to like learn how to drive or get a driver's license back in India because I just didn't need it. So, yeah. Uh, but I realized after coming to the US, especially in Houston that, you know, this is something that I'll have to figure out. Like, you know, I'll have to learn how to drive. I'll have to get a driver's license. I'll have to get a car because otherwise I'm stuck. Like there's no way I can move around. And so yeah. I think that was like, in terms of like non-academic challenges, I think this was one of the things that um, I had to do, which was save money to buy a car. Second, learn mm -hmm. how to drive and get a driver's license. But once these things were done, you know, everything yeah. was normal. So yeah. yeah. It's so interesting. You don't think about those things. They seem so trivial until you're in that situation. And it's like, it's like the opposite for people who move to a big city for the first time and realize, oh, I can't just drive everywhere. I have to learn the subway system or the bus system. Yeah. And it's really stressful the first time that you try to do that on your own. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I think it was just the reverse, you know, like coming from a yeah. place where I'm used to, you know, getting on subways and buses. And then, you know, I come to a place where I know that no, I don't really have those things to do. Like, I don't have those options. So I'll basically have to try it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in your program, did you find it was easy to sort of fit in with your, the people in your program and find your way? Yeah. So actually, I think um, there are a couple of things I, I would like to say here. So Rice University, you know, they have a very diverse student body. Um, mm. And I mean, it was very easy for me to sort of uh, see myself as a fit in the department. 
Um, mm -hmm. My colleagues were very welcoming. Um, and, you know, I, I found my academic niche in there. Mm. And so also, like, you know, I made friends on campus, my colleagues, you know, from my department, uh, you know, colleagues from other departments. So I had a great time in terms of like academic and social life uh, within uh, Rice University. As far as Houston is concerned, I know that, uh, you know, uh, the Southern states, you know, they have their own flavor of culture and everything. But Houston, I think, is sort of an island that way. I think mm -hmm. Houston is the most diverse or cosmopolitan city in the U.S. And I could actually see that. Yeah. So, like, you know, during the weekends, there was this park in Houston called the Herman Memorial Park. And anytime, you know, if I would go to that park, I'm pretty sure like there would be, you know, folks from like maybe 80 countries or so in that park. Like you, I was never in a situation where I felt like I stand out. Yeah. So yeah. that was, uh, that was actually, I think that helped me um, get settled in a new country. Um, sure. Way. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Paul and I lived there one summer with our boys when they were real little, when we were on a sabbatical. Mm -hmm. um, don't ask me why going to Houston from Tucson is a great idea for a sabbatical in the summer. It probably wasn't, but um, he had an offer to do work with ExxonMobil and it was pretty mm -hmm. exciting stuff. So we went and, um, you know, for us who have lived here in a dry desert for a long time, it was quite a shock to be there in the summer when it's really humid and hot. Yeah. But also, um, I think we went in with sort of a bit of a preconceived idea about what it was going to be like to live you know, in a state that overall people think of as a conservative state, it's a mm -hmm. Southern state, um, you know, people who have a very strong sense of identity when they're from Texas, you know, be, um, and feel very connected to their state. And we felt like you, nothing but welcomed. And there was so much diversity. We, the, the boys and I, I mean, Paul was working almost every day, but the boys and I would go, you know, we went to these parks, we went to the zoo, we went to the aquarium, all these places, the aquarium. There was so much to do there compared to Tucson. And we were just like, oh, this isn't quite what we thought it was going to be. This is pretty cool. Um, and I don't know if this is the park you're talking about. That park we went to is the one with the fountains that shoot up out of the ground. And there's like a huge playground and all the, and the kids just loved it. Yes, yes, yes. yeah. I think, I think you're just, talking about that park, yes. Yeah, and it was one of those things where we were like, we really shouldn't have had these ideas about what it was going to be like. We came, we saw, and we were really impressed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So after graduate school, you finish your PhD at Rice. Mm -hmm. What happened after that? Where did so, you go? So after I finished my PhD at Rice, I went for a postdoc uh, to Germany. Um, mm. So uh, there is this um, institution, it's called Bayerisches Geoinstitut. That's the German name. So it's basically the Bavarian Institute of Experimental uh, uh, what is it called, a geochemistry and petrology? I can look up, yeah. But it's basically an experimental geosciences institute and it's probably the best in the world. Oh, cool. Um, so I got this uh, prestigious fellowship. It's called the, hum the Alexander von Humboldt Postdoctoral Fellowship. So mm -hmm. I took that fellowship. I went to Bayreuth in Germany. So Bayreuth is this uh, little, I would call it a city actually, yeah. It's a small city uh, in the state of Bavaria in Southern Germany. Uh, mm. So that's where I did my postdoc for three years. And then um, I had a great time in Germany. Um, again, like, yeah. you know, academically, social life, both ways. It was, I had a great time there. 
great beer. <laughs> that's I, important. Yeah, that's important. <laughs> and it was, um, it, it's very different, like, you know, from the US, because here, you know, uh, we're a bit more conservative about like, you know, even like drinking beer or wine, like on, on campus and in the departments, but the culture is so different there. We had a, yeah. a, a fridge in the department kitchen that was stocked with awesome beer. And you could just basically grab a bottle and, you know, just take it to your office. And that helped, you know, especially when I was, you know, running on a clock, you know, with the deadline or something. So, yeah. Yeah, I know. It's so strange here. I remember in graduate school, um, we would have these, what we called liquidus on Friday afternoons, where everybody would sort of get together and have a drink in one of the rooms in our department. But, you know, we had to have per like a special permit that allowed us yeah. to have alcohol on site. And, you know, they were very strict about how much booze could be there. And, um, and it was always so interesting to me, like, like really we can't just have a mini fridge in our office with a few beers in it and just crack a beer when we need it. And it was very, very, you know, taboo and illegal and all of that. And sometimes it makes me feel like, you know, the United States for all this talk about us being so, you know, sort of, um, I don't know, cosmopolitan or advanced or whatever. Like, I think there are some things that we do here that are just so puritan and we just can't seem to get away get away from them <laughs> you know it's it's crazy it's crazy yeah so germany was awesome i i am so jealous of the fact that you've been able to live in so many different places i mean you go from india to the states to germany and then i assume after that is when you make your way here yes yes that is exactly yeah. what happened so um, after spending three years in Germany, uh, then I moved back to the United States. I spent a few months at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. And mm -hmm. while I was at Brown University, I got my first tenure track job offer from University of Rhode Island. Um, mm. So I was living in Providence, uh, you know, when I came back from Germany. And then I spent a few months in Providence and then I moved like 30 miles south uh, of mm -hmm. Providence to a place called Kingston in Rhode Island. That's mm -hmm. actually very close to the campus of University of Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I was at uh, University of Rhode Island for about a year and a half. I started in January 2019. And then mm -hmm. I moved to Tucson uh, with another job offer at University of Arizona, where, of course, I am right now. Um, so I moved to Tucson uh, at the end of June in this year. So I spent yeah. about a year and a half in uh, Kingston, Rhode Island. Yeah. So that is very different from what you're used to in terms of climate. You were in the Northeast oh, yes. <laughs> through a winter. Yes. <laughs> what was that like for you? Well, you know, so I think the first big climate change for me, uh, you know, in terms of experience, came when I moved from Houston to Germany. Yeah. Uh, because Bayreuth, you know, I mean, uh, well, winters in Bayreuth weren't as maybe as brutal as winters in the Northeast in the U.S., but, you know, yeah. it, it would still get cold. It would snow on some days. Um, and, you know, that was, I think, the first sort of big change for me. And I, I got used to it, you know. Like, once yeah. you start living there, um, you get used to it in three years, you know. That's good enough. And the one thing that I really liked about Germany is um, how people enjoyed being outdoors, even in the cold weather. So, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, sometime, I think it was at the end of November, uh, they would have this, uh, this was like, you know, when the pre-Christmas celebrations would start and they would have these like Christmas markets and, you know, like places where you can drink blue wine, which is basically like, you know, wine, you know, warm wine with spices and you basically oh, you yeah. gather with your friends and family and you drink that. And 
uh, yeah. just sort of, you know, enjoying uh, being outdoors in the cold uh, with friends and family. So I, I kind of, I yeah. really like that because that helps you, um, you know, get used to the weather, of course, and also appreciate, you know, uh, your surroundings, I guess, or the environment where you're living. So yeah. um, I, I really, I really like that. And uh, that helped me get used to the cold winters as well. Although I remember my colleagues would say that I wear too many jackets or too many, or my jackets or coats were too thick for them. I was like, okay, fine. You know, I'm getting used to a new place, new weather. It's okay if I, you know, if I cover up a bit more than all of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny you say that about being outdoors in the cold, because this is one of the arguments I use with people when, when I say that I miss upstate New York, which is where I'm from. And people look at me like I'm crazy. Like, why would you want to be there when you could be here in Arizona where it's warm and sunny all the time? And, and my response to them is always, well, yes, except that I feel like I can't be outside here at least four to five months of the year when it's really brutally hot. There's just no way to enjoy the outdoors safely or comfortably. But where I grew up, even in winter, when it was cold and snowy, people would go outside. You would bundle yeah. up and go for walks through the snow. People would cross country ski. You could go sledding. And so unless it was like a full on blizzard, people found ways to be outdoors during the winter. And to yeah. me, it feels tenable to get mm -hmm. bundled up and go outside when it's cold, but it doesn't feel tenable to be outdoors when it's 110. Yeah. It just doesn't work. You know, yeah. you'll, you'll get sick, you'll have heat stroke. So I, I understand that people really enjoy living in a place where you're not battling the snow per se, like you have to go drive to work in the morning and you've got to scrape your mm -hmm. car off. That's no fun. But then I counter with yes. And I get in my car in the morning and I burn my hands on the steering wheel. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's not all, you know, puppies and roses here either, folks. So sure, it's just yeah. interesting to see how people get so tied to this view that the warm weather equals a better life. And I actually miss that cold a lot, especially this time of year. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I kind of miss, you know, that crisp fall cold air that, you know, touches your face when you go out to work because I felt like that used to energize me, you know? Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Okay. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk mm -hmm. about your work. because It's so yeah. interesting. Um, and first of all, because not everyone who listens is really well-versed in geosciences. And so what I do want to say is um, when we talk about petrology, right, that word petro, we're talking about the study of rocks, basically, and understanding rocks. And I think it was really great when you said, you know, trying to understand the processes that are happening in the earth because we can't see what's going on down within the earth, we really do rely on um, looking at rocks that used to be down there deep in the earth, but also these ex you know, being experimental and being able to recreate the conditions that might be happening somewhere down deep within the earth. So I would love to have you talk a little bit about um, what you do in the lab, maybe some examples of how you do these types of things, the types of processes you recreate to, and what kind of questions you're thinking about when you're doing this work. Yeah. So, you know, I think you phrased it exactly, you know, the way that I would have saying that, you know, we study these rocks um, as basically proxies of, you know, what's going on deep inside, because unfortunately, we have not been able to go deep inside the earth yet. Hopefully yeah. this yeah. will happen at some point uh, in the future. Um, so, uh, yes. Yeah, so, um, where I think my research comes in is, let's say I go out into the field, I pick up a piece of rock, which is, you know, a proxy or, you know, some sort of a, the way I'd like to say it is, you know, if I'm a detective, that's a clue mm -hmm. 
you know, exactly. as a detective, I wasn't present at the murder scene, you know, but then what I have right. are clues and it's up to me yep. to figure out what happened at the murder scene, looking at these clues. So, yeah. you know, I pick up a piece of rock and I study it, but then the question is, how do I understand how this rock was formed? At what depths mm-hmm. was it formed? Um, mm-hmm. What sort of information can it be carrying? You know, and in order to answer some of these questions, that's when, you know, these experiments come in useful because as you said, what I do in my lab is I simulate conditions that exist deep inside the earth, mm-hmm. right? And so in the lab, I'm able to study, for example, how magmas form inside the earth, what kinds mm-hmm. of magmas form inside the earth. When these yeah. magmas cool down, what kinds of rocks and minerals do they produce? And mm-hmm. so also like once you know these magmas they form at a certain depth inside the earth of course you know at what temperatures they form at what pressures they form can actually Mm -hmm. tell us that's like a thermometer right so it it sort of tells us exactly what the pressure and temperature conditions are inside our own planet right yeah and then as these magmas would you know come up through the earth um do they change as they come up you know what happens to them during their journey up so all of these, you know, questions, uh, these are things that I sort of answer uh, doing these experiments in my lab, where uh, the way we create these high pressure and temperature conditions that exist inside mm-hmm. the Earth or any other, you know, planetary body, it could be the moon, it could be Mars, Mercury, you know, take your pick. Um, we have these hydraulic presses. They're basically, mm-hmm. you know, these hydraulic presses with rams. The rams will pressurize your sample. That's mm-hmm. sort of the easiest way to create the pressure um, that you need to produce. Uh, as far as heating is concerned, what we do is we have these um, sort of graphite heaters that go around our uh, samples. Then mm-hmm. we pass electricity through these graphite heaters. So the graphite heaters mm. will heat up and that's how the samples get heated. So this is exactly how you know, pressures and temperatures um, are created uh, in, in our lab. And then of course, give- you know, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but give people a sense of what types of pressures and temperatures we're talking about in the earth. Cause I also don't think people always understand like we live at the surface, right? So we're used to these sort of ambient temperatures and to us 112 degrees is hot and miserable, but what's going on in the earth is pretty extreme. Right, right. So um, the kinds of uh, pressures that we go up to, you know, in terms of gigapascals, that's a unit that we commonly use would be mm-hmm. like uh, one to three gigapascals. That's equivalent to depths of, you know, like uh, 30 to maybe 120 kilometers deep inside the earth. And yeah. if I convert that to maybe atmospheres, uh, that would be, let me quickly look up. Yeah, because that's the other thing is we're used to the pressure again at the surface, which is just the pressure of the atmosphere that's above our heads, right? That we feel, which we don't really feel it So at all. Right, right. So in terms of atmospheres, uh, you know, the pressures that it would exist maybe at like 30 to 120 kilometers deep inside the earth would be 10,000 to 30,000 atmospheres. So you can imagine right. what yeah. kind of intense pressures we're talking about. In terms of yeah. temperatures, yes, 200 degrees, you know, is too hot for us, but then the kinds yeah. of temperatures that we look at would be something like a thousand degrees Celsius to maybe 1500 degrees Celsius. So like really, really right. hot. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah, I think that's fascinating because um, I've had some students in my class sometimes ask about Mercury in particular because that planet is so close to the sun, you know, um, 
one student asked me in class yesterday because we were talking about earthquakes on Mercury and they asked something about, you know, well, if it's that close to the sun, wouldn't it be hot enough to have plate tectonics? And we had to have a discussion about sort of the external heating of a planet versus heat that's within a planet. Right. And that those are two different heat sources and that the heat from the sun isn't going to cause those rocks to melt at the surface, but deep within a planet like Earth, it's hot enough that you can have conditions where rocks actually melt. Mm -hmm. And the conditions required for rocks to melt are beyond what we could really understand here at Earth's surface. You're, mm -hmm. you're never going to see rocks melt at the surface because of the sun. Right. And I think right. that sometimes can blow their minds a little bit because we think of heat as heat from the sun. And to think that there's that much heat beneath our feet and we don't know it's there, we can't feel it, is pretty amazing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it sort of changes your perspective of things, right? Like what's hot yeah. for you or, you know, how high a pressure can you go to? And I think it, it, it's sort of mind blowing uh, for a lot of people. It was for me when I started with this that we can actually recreate 10,000 or 30,000 atmospheres of pressure inside a lab because that's the kind of pressure that exists, you know, a few, a, a, just a hundred kilometers inside the earth. If you go even right. deeper, it's going to be even higher. Right. So, yeah, so that's the other thing, like, you know, having different equipment uh, that can go to these different depth ranges in the planet. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. most of what I do is restricted to what I call the upper mantle of the earth. So yes. within the, maybe the first hundred or a couple hundred kilometers deep inside the earth, we do have equipment, uh, you know, again, some, you know, even heavier hydraulic presses, I would say, that can go even deeper, maybe like up to the transition zone, so about like 600 kilometers deep inside the earth. And then mm -hmm. if somebody wants to go even deeper, you know, the earth's lower mantle or the metallic core of the earth, you know, those kinds of pressures, for that we uh, use something called a diamond anvil cell, which is mm. very, you know, it, it's very interesting because a diamond anvil cell is basically two diamonds uh, yeah. with the pointy tips touching each other. Yep. The idea being that the pointy tips, they're so small. So, you know, if you know, the pressure is force divided by area. So you can increase pressure either by increasing force or by decreasing area on right. which the force is acting. So what yes. these diamond tips do is they actually reduce the area on which the force is acting to such an extent that you can actually go to those super high pressures that exist close to even the core of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. That is amazing. I didn't know about that, about using these, these diamond uh, anvil tips. That's really cool. Yeah. And again, just to give people a sense, when you talk about working in the upper mantle, like a hundred, 150 kilometers down the, the depth to the core, right. If just to get to the earth's core is over 5,000 kilometers yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, you're talking about a very, very it's actually quite shallow, but mm -hmm. to us, again, 100 kilometers, 150 kilometers seems quite deep. But in terms yes. of the entire thickness of the earth, it's quite shallow. And then mm -hmm. just to even wrap your brain around the fact that the core of the earth isn't even rock anymore, it's just metal, that there's this mm -hmm. metal core, part, part of which is actually liquid in the earth, mm -hmm. is just, you know, and it all is this balance between pressure and temperature, how something can melt is a delicate balance of how much pressure it's experiencing and what temperature it's experiencing. So it's not as simple as, oh, these rocks get hotter and they melt, mm -hmm. right? The pressure conditions have to be right for those rocks to melt or else if there's too much pressure, they just won't. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. 
So, you know, the, the, the melting temperature of these rocks would increase the, the higher in pressure you go. So you would basically need right. even hotter temperatures to melt these rocks the further deep you go. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So one thing I saw on your profile says that you're interested also in um, deep uh, nitrogen cycling or something like that, which yes. is something I had never heard about or thought about. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so you know, it's it's uh, it's actually quite amusing that you say you've never heard of this before, because yes, that's not something that has been you know in the attention radar, I would say, of earth scientists such as myself. Uh, you know, yeah. like we talk a lot about uh, you know water, about carbon, about sulfur, but I think recently nitrogen as an element and how nitrogen behaves in the entire Earth system has gained a lot of interest. Uh, mm. As we all know that the Earth's atmosphere is like mostly nitrogen, 78% nitrogen, yeah. right? right? But I think it's, right. it's mind-blowing when I say that maybe the Earth's mantle or even maybe the Earth's core, they could be even bigger reservoirs of nitrogen than our own atmosphere. Mm. So there oh, could wow. be more nitrogen stored inside the Earth, the solid body of the Earth, than we have in the atmosphere. Wow. And what... what I think what got me interested in this kind of research is the fact that the earth is like, it's like a breathing machine, you know, that's the way I like to call it because yeah. there are so many things happening. Like each, each part of the earth communicates with the other. So the atmosphere, the surface of the earth, the crust of the earth, all of them communicate with the deep interior of the earth. And actually yeah. it is through this mutual communication that our planet evolves you know, or has been evolving throughout uh, her history. So right. for the last like, you know, 4.56 billion years, there has been a lot of complex interactions going on between all of these different reservoirs of the earth that have shaped not just how the earth's rocky body looks, but also mm -hmm. how the earth's atmosphere has been. And even, right. you know, in turn, how the earth's climate has been on a geological yeah. time scale over, you know, like right. several millions of years. Uh, yeah. What got me really interested is how do we understand how the Earth's atmosphere composition has been changing because of these, you know, communications between the Earth's atmosphere crust and what's going on deep inside the Earth. So yeah. I'm, you know, my, my role to play in this puzzle is studying the process that goes on deep inside the Earth. But at mm -hmm. the same time, I want to use that to understand how the deep interior talks to the surface and vice versa. Yeah. So what yeah, kind of exchange so cool. goes on between uh, these two? Um, yeah, which is so cool because again, so I don't think everybody does know that the majority of our atmosphere is made of nitrogen. I think people think oxygen when they think of the atmosphere because that's what we breathe, but that's about 20, 21% yeah. of our atmosphere. Um, and the other interesting thing to me is the potential here if we start to understand if there is a lot of nitrogen in the solid earth and we start to understand how it gets there and why it's there and is it cycling from deep within the earth to the atmosphere and back again, could this have implications for things like carbon dioxide and methane that cause havoc in our atmosphere? Is there a way to sort of, you know, usurp whatever the earth is doing and figure out a way to do it ourselves so that we can actually drive the cycle of get greenhouse gases into the solid earth as opposed to into the atmosphere, yeah. which could potentially help us in the future yeah. with all of our yeah. greenhouse effect and global warming problems. Um, mm -hmm. 
but it's just fascinating to think like, why do we have so much nitrogen in our atmosphere if there isn't any anywhere else in the earth? Right, right. And you know, like now that you bring up carbon dioxide, one thing that I want to sort of point out is if you look at the atmospheric compositions of, let's say, Venus, Earth, and Mars, just these three, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Venus yeah. and Mars, it's mostly carbon dioxide, like 95% right. or greater. And the Earth yeah. is so different. Mm -hmm. And this is where, you know, one of the key things about the Earth comes in, which is what we now believe is that maybe it was plate tectonics that somehow regulated the Earth's atmospheric composition such that the CO2 that may have originally been there in the Earth's atmosphere when the Earth was born actually got locked in the Earth's crust and then just basically got shoved inside the Earth, you know, deep inside the Earth yeah. because of plate mm -hmm. tectonics. So, uh, you know, these are like some of the things that make you realize how, maybe how unique the Earth is, you know, like just maybe just plate tectonics, just having plate tectonics may, may have made a huge difference to how our own planet evolved, you know, compared to her neighbors in the solar system. Yeah. Oh, I totally think so. I mean, we know that carbon gets trapped in carbonate rocks when they're being formed. Um, I think we also know, or at least we think we know that that life on earth first started cycling carbon dioxide, right? So we had a carbon dioxide rich, or at least more carbon dioxide in the past than we have today. And some of that is due to photosynthesis, um, removing that CO2 and producing oxygen. But you know, it is interesting to think like Venus, for example, I mean, the temperature at the surface of Venus is it's something like 700 plus degrees uh, compared to the, to the earth because of how much CO2 is in its atmosphere. So, and then you think about, okay, so on earth, we have less than 1% of our atmosphere is CO2, right? I mean, it's such a small percent and yet it creates what's happening today in terms yeah. of you know, uh, climate change. And it's not just CO2. I mean, other gases play a role as well, but we hear about CO2 all the time. And it's, mm -hmm. it would be so interesting to have a better handle on sort of how these gases, as you say, talk and speak with and interact with the deeper layers of the planet. Right, exactly. And I think like one of the key players, you know, that enables this sort of a conversation between the atmosphere and deep inside the earth is plate tectonics. Because- yeah. What plate tectonics does is, is it basically sets up a conveyor belt, you know? So mm -hmm. things from the surface get pushed deep inside the earth, but then at the same time, we also have volcanoes that spit out some of the things from the deep into the atmosphere. So there's like yeah. this ongoing communication going on. Now it's a matter of who wins. Is yeah. we have more stuff getting pulled from the atmosphere and shoved inside the earth? Or do we have more stuff coming out from the volcanoes? So basically yeah. stuff getting released back into the atmosphere. So it's sort of, you know, who wins in these two processes? And basically that, that is what dictates how the, Earth's, how the Earth has been evolving, you know, what the Earth's atmosphere has been. So yeah. one of the reasons why I got so interested in, in basically understanding how nitrogen as an element behaves in today's Earth, you know, how much nitrogen is taken off from the atmosphere and pushed inside the Earth and how much nitrogen, let's say, comes out from the volcanoes back into the atmosphere is because mm -hmm. if I go back in time, of course, you know, the atmosphere was different back then. How different was yeah. it? Did yeah. the Earth's atmosphere, you know, back when, you know, in the very early days of the Earth, did the Earth's atmosphere have more nitrogen back then? And this is important because if uh, uh, what we understand right now is that, you know, 
back, you know, three billion years ago, let's say, the sun was actually 30% dimmer than what it is today. Mm. And so if you look at just the basic energy balance from the sun, then we should have had like a frozen earth back then, yeah. three billion years ago. But yeah. instead of that, we actually find evidence of liquid water on earth. And so the right. big question is, well, we should have had a frozen earth, but we don't see evidence of a frozen earth. So something caused warming in the earth yeah. back then. Right. What was it? Right, right, right. And so, you know, different scientists, you know, they would say that, oh, there were greenhouse gases back then. And that's plausible. You know, maybe you had more CO2, maybe you had more methane, maybe you had more ammonia, you know, things that would cause warming. But then there was yeah. another interesting idea proposed that just if you have more nitrogen in the atmosphere three billion years ago, then having more nitrogen would actually increase how much of radiation the earth would absorb from the sun. Mm. And so, you know, that would also be a good way or an elegant way to explain why the earth may have been warmer than we otherwise would think. Like, because yeah. for the energy balance, that's not what's predicted. So, right. How, how did the earth have more nitrogen in the atmosphere? If the earth did have more nitrogen, of course, that's a big question. But then yeah. the answer to that lies in the fact that, you know, the atmosphere composition has been changing through Earth's history. And mm -hmm. basically understanding how the atmosphere and the deep earth talk to each other. Yeah. Is, this is the process that regulates how the atmosphere would be in geological timescales. So yeah. what I do as a scientist is in, in this huge puzzle, you know, that's out there, I look at what's happening deep inside the earth and yeah. whatever's happening there, the processes that happen there, what effect do they have on what we see on the surface? Yeah. Oh, that's so fascinating. Well, that's really, really interesting. I appreciate you sharing with me about the nitrogen because I didn't know about that and I love learning new things. Um, so before we wrap up, the last thing I want to talk about, because this might be interesting to students here at U of A, is that we're starting this new gem science track in the Department of Geosciences, which you are spearheading. This is going to be the first of its kind in this country, an academic uh, degree, a Bachelor of Science in Geoscience, which it will be, but with an emphasis on gem science. And so um, do you want to talk a little bit about what this track is going to be like for students who may be interested in learning about gems? Absolutely. So as you said, this is actually the one of, it, it's probably the only one of its kind in the country right now. Yeah. And it's yeah. super exciting because the, the motivation behind building this sort of a track or an emphasis on gems is to be mm -hmm. able to give students a comprehensive or interdisciplinary training on, you know, how to study gems so that they can develop, you know, these sort of very holistic skills that they can use uh, to research on gems in the future, as well as, you know, that would be of use to the gem industry to understand yeah. gems better. Uh, mm -hmm. Gems, of course, you know, they're aesthetic, you know, they have value in their aesthetics, but at the same time, they're minerals, which bring, right. you know, which is sort of the connection with geosciences here, right? So yeah. understanding gems would also require understanding the geology behind gems, which are basically minerals. But at the right. same time, uh, not only will the students learn about the geology of gems, you know, that would help in uh, gem exploration and understanding the circumstances and uh, the processes that lead to gem formation, they would also be trained on, uh, you know, tools or equipments that 
are used in the industry or in research to characterize gems. You know, mm -hmm. uh, that would be used, for example, to uh, in grading gemstones. You know, mm -hmm. what are the different techniques, you know, state of the art, you know, techniques that are used. Uh, that is also something that the students would learn. Also, interestingly, uh, the students will also have options to take design classes to learn, for example, tools that they can use to, you know, create jewelry design using gems. That's of interest yeah. to the gem industry. Uh, they will also have options to take classes in retail to understand, you know, the market and uh, the economics of uh, this whole, you know, gem industry um, that's there. And so we are sort of building this very, you know, um, comprehensive interdisciplinary uh, track to give the students an option to understand GEMS from multiple perspectives. So I think this is yeah. a very unique opportunity that we hope to create so that, uh, you know, uh, the GEM industry and even the, the, you know, the academic research that goes on with GEMS uh, all of them will benefit uh, from yeah. this kind of a program that we're proposing. Yeah, what I really love about it is that it is truly interdisciplinary, which for a lot of science degrees, you know, I mean, science is interdisciplinary, but it's very focused on that scientific path. And this will allow students to explore those other areas you talked about. But at the same time, it truly is a science degree. So you're still getting all the foundational science, the mathematics, and the geology, but in addition, you're sort of thinking about then how this might translate into another type of career in the world that may not be academically um, focused. You may decide, you know, do this track and decide you want to become a researcher in mineralogy or gemology, but you also could decide that you want, as you say, to become a jewelry designer or a gem, someone who works with gems in the retail field. And having that scientific knowledge is never going to be a bad thing to be in that world. Like yeah. to really know your stuff about gems can only yeah. help you, even if you want to work in the more retail side of things. So I just think it's a fantastic opportunity and students who are listening who might have any interest should look into it because, you know, starting next academic year, we're going to launch this program and we'll be looking for majors. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We are all very excited about this. Yes, I am as well. It's time for Geos to have another new track, something that is maybe a little bit sexy and <laughs> might attract <laughs> students with with different interests besides just rocks, because I'll tell you, every time yeah. I tell someone I'm a geologist, the first thing they say is, oh, you study rocks. And geos is <laughs> such a diverse, you know, we're such a diverse field with people studying everything from, you know, chemistry of the oceans to climate change to rocks and minerals yes. and everything in between plate tectonics, you know. So GEMS is going to be something that I think is just, and Tucson, I mean, this town is such a gem and fossil and mineral town with the with the yearly gem show. So I mean, we've got yeah. a community of people here that I think um, will enjoy this. And by the way, we're going to have a museum, right? That goes yes. along with this. Yes, exactly. So it's super exciting, and the museum will have classrooms in there mm. as well. Uh, so what we're planning right now is to integrate uh, some of this gem track, the education uh, component. Uh, with the museum's education vision as well. So that, you know, it's a better way for us to connect to the community here, just as you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the museum is going to be downtown in Tucson, right? Yes, in the Pima Courthouse building. Oh my gosh. So there's, it's going to be a beautiful space. It's going to be public friendly. It's going to have an academic uh, 
twist to it as well with yes. classrooms and programming. Yes. And at some point when we find ourselves out of the situation we're in right now, um, we may actually be able to have people coming in in large numbers to look at our beautiful mineral collection and, and learn something about gems. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, I think that's something that we're all looking forward to. <laughs> yeah. I think so too. Yep. We'll have to have a big party at the museum once we're able to all get together again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you for your time. This has been really interesting and I'm so glad that you were willing to talk with me and share some of your personal stories and, um, I just really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit better. So thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you as well. And I hope that, you know, I was able to communicate, you know, some of the science we do and basically interest other students to get curious. I think, yeah, yes. that's important. <laughs> Curiosity is the key. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I thank you again. And I hopefully will see you in the department sometime soon. Yeah, same here. I'm looking forward to meeting everyone in person. <laughs> I know. All right. Well, thank you. We'll talk later. Yeah. Bye. All right. Bye.